0: In our study on uh, vacationing, what we're doing today is talking about a vacation of solitude. There is a book and was made into a movie called Into the Wild. And the subject of that book and movie is Christopher McCandless. And he says this in his story. He was an extreme adventurer. You're just living, man. You're just there in that moment, in that special place and time. The freedom and simple beauty is too good to pass up. There is something special about a quiet, untouched forest that just pulls you into the moment. It just pulls you down. There you go. Let's go back up. I want us to focus on that, pulls you into the moment. That's what solitude is. It is being in the moment because we all get caught up in the things that we do. It's easy to forget that we are human beings, we are not human doings. We just need to learn to be. Psychologist and Buddhist teacher and author Sylvia Bornstein says, don't just do something, sit there. The point of solitude is to do nothing to not try to make anything happen. I never practiced solitude until 2012 when I was released from my position as pastor of a local church. That experience was a major moment in my spiritual journey. Up to that time, my spiritual formation had been very orderly. It had been very... Conceptual, analytical, judgmental. It had been based upon prescribed beliefs. But my experiences had challenged those beliefs. And those challenges of those beliefs were not shared by the board of bosses at the church. And we parted ways. Well, I left. But one of my bosses who did share those challenges gave me a book on that occasion about St. Francis. In that book, in that story, I found a path toward wholeness. Not that I've arrived at wholeness, but it's a path that I'm on. I found a new way of spirituality that took me into a cave of solitude. Tucked away in the surrounding hills of Assisi, Italy, the home of St. Francis, is a cave to which Francis would often go for solitude, stillness, and silence. While in that cave, in those moments of solitude, you would ponder two questions. Who are you, God? And who am I? In 2012, those questions became very real to me. And it was in my solitude that I began to hear an answer, began to see an answer. The truth is, we don't like solitude. We don't like to do nothing. We want to do something. Some psychologists, sociologists at the University of Virginia did a study released in Science Magazine in which they tried to measure how we handle solitude, and we don't handle it very well. They put people, I think they had a survey of a couple hundred people into a room by themselves for anywhere from 6 to 15 minutes. They had no distractions in that room except each person at their time was given a remote control that would administer to themselves if they pushed the button an electrical painful shock. The results of that study of solitude show that people prefer to shock themselves than to be (laughs) in solitude. 25% of the women shocked themselves at least once during that time and 66% of men i can't take being quiet i got <clears> to <throat> i'd rather be in pain than be quiet we don't like solitude now given our aversion to solitude stillness and silence it's unsettling to think that a part of spirituality is to be solitude silent and still but do you know that Jesus began his public ministry in forty days of solitude? Often Jesus would break away from his disciples, from his work, to be in solitude, in stillness, and silence. We see it even in the Hebrew scriptures. David writes, God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth for God alone my soul waits in silence and i begin to learn that maybe that's some lot of the reason why i don't always am not always awakened to the presence of god because i'm not silent i'm too busy mother teresa says god is the friend of silence his language is silence and He requires us to be silent, to discover him. We need, therefore, silence to be alone with God, to speak to him, to listen to him, to ponder his words deep in our hearts. We need to be alone with God in silence, to be renewed and to be transformed. See, those words were so foreign to me. They just didn't make sense for so many years. For silence can give us a new outlook on life. In it, we are filled with the grace of God, which makes us do all things with joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during the Nazi time of Germany, and he was imprisoned by the Nazis and died in prison. He says, silence is nothing else but waiting for God's word. And coming from God's word with a blessing, but everybody knows that this is something that needs to be practiced and learned. Two things I want us to notice about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's statement. I grew up in an environment, maybe you did too, whenever we hear the phrase God's word, we think of a book. That's not fair for us to think that way. God's word is a lot bigger than a book. I do not believe Dietrich Bonhoeffer was thinking about the Bible. He, did, he had a Bible. He wasn't talking about being silent with the Scripture. He's talking about solitude and stillness and silence, and out of that, we sense God. We hear God's Word in the silence. And then he says it needs to be practiced and learned. <laughs> Practice solitude is what we say. It's like practicing your golf swing. And I still suck (laughs) at golf, and I often suck at solitude. Practice your musical instrument. You learn to play, and you learn to be quiet. It's a practice. Paul Bain says, solitude is a sacred place of silence where God has access to our inner being and soul. Stillness and silence and solitude awakened me. And that's a good thing to be awake. When he learned of this, Jesus said to them, his disciples were arguing, worried, anxious. Why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Have your hearts been hardened? Though you have eyes, don't you see? And though you have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember? the little meal I served on the hillside for over 5,000 people. A lot of of us have eyes, but don't see God. We have ears, but we don't hear God, just like the disciples. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, for everything made visible is light. And for this reason, it says, and he quotes Isaiah, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Being woke is a good thing. Don't let the politicians steal that concept from you. If we're not spiritually awake, then we're hurting, and we're sick, and we're walking into walls, and we're not hearing God or seeing God, please be woke. Solitude awakened me to three things. It awakened me to my false self. Solitude brought to the surface my inner demons. My inner conflicts, my distresses, my bitterness, unforgiveness of people, my anger, my need for obsession, it's an obsessive need that I had for a pat on the back and for approval of people. And in solitude, all these things just showed their ugly faces to me. Solitude didn't stop there. It also awakened me to presence. Presence of God, the presence of love, the presence of my true self. In solitude, I I just show up with all of my yuck, my insecurities and need for approval of others and thinking how many mean notes did I get this week and how many thank you notes did I get this week. And I just had that drive for that type of approval. And I just show up with all those insecurities. And I just if I just stay there long enough, as I face those inner demons and the ugly parts about my false self if I just wait long enough I become aware of a gentle grace filled presence of love of God and it is a a love that is so powerful that it transforms and capable of transforming the pain of the world and even my own pain. Presence. My false self doesn't really know that it's loved. So it craves reinforcement from others. My false self lives outside of the belovedness of God for me but in solitude I discovered what my head always knew that I was loved by God and that my changing of beliefs and my if you want to call it deconstruction my deconstruction did not threaten my position as the object of God's love and the emotional wounds that I had experienced began to be healed, and I began to let go of that insecurity, that need for affirmation. I haven't completely let go of it. Still send me a thank you note. (laughs) But I began to let go. But I also woke up to the love of others. Thomas Merton. Says it is in deep solitude and silence that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brother and sister. See, I had a lot of issues of unforgiveness and resentment, a lot of issues of bitterness, and I knew what the scripture says. You know, I remember Jesus talking about for forgiving. Uh, you know, seventy times seven, and that means that's four hundred ninety times. So, I was counting. (laughs) There were people that I didn't forgive and that I despised, and I liked despising them. I liked not liking them. But through solitude, and this is so weird because I knew all the Bible verses on loving one another, but I never did feel that toward people. But through solitude, I began to see the people whom I thought mistreated me in an understanding way. Begin began to see things through their eyes. And not only in solitude did I feel like I was a beloved of God, but in solitude, I began to feel like they were the beloved of God. The very people who hurt me were loved by God. And they, too, were recipients of God's grace and under God's grace. I bought this book by Richard Foster way back when I was in the Baptist denomination on spiritual disciplines. I didn't read it, though, until recently. and Gosh, I should have read it a long time ago. The fruit of solitude is increased sensitivity and compassion for others. There comes a new freedom to be with people. There's a new attentiveness to their needs, new responsiveness to their hurts. So I want us to take a vacation as often as we can, a daily one would be nice, of solitude. Solitude has done this for me and maybe it will for you. It connects me to a power that I have within to love, that you have within you to love to find peace and to be gentle and to be kind. The power was always there. I just wasn't awakened to it until I started practicing solitude. So now's the time to wake up. Now's the time for more healers, more liberators, and more peacemakers. Take a picture, if you will, not of me, I'll move. But of these books that Denise so beautifully put up here on display. These are books that have helped myself and Denise as well on her journey on contemplation and solitude. My favorite was Richard Rohr's Breathing Underwater, given to me when I was at Fellowship Bible. I read this and I thought, who is this nut called Richard Rohr? (laughs) But my gosh, it connected spirituality and the 12 steps. That was my favorite. Thomas Merton, another book by Father Rohr, another book on centering prayer, another book by Thomas Keating, Open Mind, Open Heart. Mm, I love it. Okay. We need peace and solitude because we're going to talk about a controversial topic. And so you won't get mad and throw things at me. Denise, will you come join me? <laughs> We've got 13 minutes. And I wish I had more. And we might stay a couple minutes longer with the kiddos. All right. Hey, Joey, can you help with the chair for Nisi? appreciate that. So I've got a whole nother presentation. I think it's up here. Maybe. Hey, that's me. If you have a question about this, text it. Okay. When it comes to abortion, what I want to do is ask the question, what does love say about it? Thanks, Joey. And what does uh, love do in relation to this particular topic? So Denise... Tell us a little bit, our backgrounds are the same at church world. Uh, what do we think about abortion growing up? Mostly high school. We didn't really think about it much in grade school, junior high. Nope, I don't I think. a little girl. I didn't think Are you about turned on? It. I don't think you are. You can't turn me off. Hello, 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 hello. Is it on? Okay. Thank you. So what was, where were we in the old abortion world?
1: Um, Yeah, I was like you. I did not think about it at all as a child. But um, growing up, um, I really pretty much lived an idyllic life and didn't have to worry about something like that. And so it never occurred to me that that would be something that I would need or want to do. It just didn't make sense to me. But as we have gone on this 42-year journey of talking to people, um, you know, I, I, as a child, w- was not um, molested by a relative. Um, so that was not a situation that I had to think about. Um, 14 or 13 years old or young and that happening, I know that um, it was just Not in my thought, I just didn't think it was something that I personally would not need or want to do. And so it didn't occur to me that it would be necessary for somebody else to do.
0: Yeah, we have a tendency to look at other people through the eyes of our own experience. And Mm -hmm. our world was pretty squeaky clean. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't deal with a lot of pain. So we grew up. Uh, advocating, being taught, and then advocating ourselves uh, the views of abortion that are promoted by uh, the religious right. Uh, We were greatly influenced by the Jerry Falwells and Francis Schaeffers of the world. In our minds, it was all about the baby. The women, the people who got pregnant, the factors surrounding their pregnancy we're not even considerations. We had a very simple formula that personhood begins at conception, and so abortion is murder, no ifs, ands, and buts. But we've changed. And what happened to us, that indoctrination that we both received, meant that we never listened to the stories of people who were going through... Difficult times, difficult pregnancies, or difficult circumstances. So we didn't know what that story would even sound like. We lived by a formula. And if people didn't obey that formula, then we really wanted nothing to do with them. Where I am today is described and where I think Denise is without doubt. We saw on the news the other day a story from Miss Sherry, a romper room. We Some of us remember romper room in Phoenix, Arizona is where she worked. She's the mother of four, and uh, she got pregnant, and she had morning sickness, and her husband brought home from Europe some uh, sedatives that had this chemical in it called uh, thalidomide and it caused severe birth defects in her unborn child. Her doctor recommended an abortion, because there's no way that child would survive. The hospitals in Phoenix refused to do it, and so she went to Sweden and had the abortion. She lost her job as Miss Sherry on Romper Room. In an interview on CBS Sunday morning, Two or three weeks ago, Ms. Sherry said something that I relate to, and I think Nisi does too. She says, I am pro-choice and anti-abortion. And I think that's me, isn't it? Do you feel that in your own gut?
1: Yeah, it. I used to think you had to be one or the other. But you can be both. It's okay to be both.
0: Yeah, it doesn't. And one thing these people have taught Denise and me, and we've experienced in our solitude times, is it's not an either or. Most of life is not either or, it's both and. And it's not black and white. Our evangelical world, we only had two colors in our crayon box a black one and a white one. We had no grays. Every, everything was viewed that way, and, and even this particular issue. And then we began to actually listen to people. I, Denise and I started, we quit telling people things and started listening. And we found out there are so many shades of gray 50 shades of gray.
1: That's a different series. It's a different series.
0: <laughs> we'll pack them out with that series. So, how did we get to where we are today from being so anti-abortion to now being pro-choice?
1: And anti-abortion. Right.
0: But for us to even consider being pro-choice, and our families still worry about that. So, here, number one. I discovered that the argument that the Bible is clear that personhood begins at conception is not clear. 1967, I was in eighth grade. Denise was in first. There was an article in Eternity Magazine, Evangelical Magazine, and the article said this, the Bible is strangely silent on the question of whether the unborn fetus was a living person with all the rights of life. 1968, Christianity Today. I still subscribe to Christianity Today, the flagship magazine for evangelical Christians. They quoted Bruce Waltke, who is at a very conservative seminary in Dallas, DTS. He's quoted in 1968. The Bible plainly teaches that life begins with birth, not conception. God does not regard the fetus as a soul, no matter how far gestation has progressed interesting certainly doesn't reflect evangelical thinking today I grew up, Denise grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention in 1971 at the Southern Baptist Convention I think that one was in St. Louis uh had this resolution be it further resolved that we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. And that resolution was confirmed at the subsequent conventions of 1974 and 1976. Back to Christianity Today, Carl Henry was the editor of Christianity Today. It was his view, and he stated this over and over, a woman's body is not the domain or property of others, especially the government. W.A. Crystal was pastor at First Baptist in Dallas. When Denise and I were kids, even uh, high schoolers, I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and held a, had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. It's always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. We won't hear those words from Southern Baptists today. And James Dobson, of all people, there was a time in the mid-seventies where he said it was plausible for an evangelical to believe that a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded As a full human being. So, what happened? Why did SBC change? Why did evangelicals change? Well, it wasn't the 1973 Roe Wade decision because the convention, Southern Baptist, they were still had this resolution on uh, supporting a, a right to choose in 74 and 76. Jerry Falwell didn't even start preaching against abortion until 1978, five years after Roe Wade. The SBC did come out against abortion in nineteen seventy-nine, six years after Roe v. So why was the change? Well, I studied this. Obviously, I wouldn't talk to you if I didn't study it. The reason they changed was because of politics, pure and simple. wasn't because spirituality, wasn't because of theology. It was political. See, evangelicals had rallied around uh, segregation. And then the government came out under President Nixon and said that organiza- Christian organizations that segregated were no longer tax-exempt. And so evangelicals couldn't rally around segregation anymore. And so there's a guy named Paul Wyrich who started the moral majority with... Uh, Uh, Jerry Falwell came up with the name Moral Majority. He got together with all these evangelical evangelical leaders and he wrote a book on it. That was dumb of him, wasn't it? But he records all this stuff in his own book and uh, he said they were looking for a cause that would make the evangelical group a power in politics. A voting block in politics. And somebody suggested abortion. Bingo. And they adopted that. And in a letter, Weirich wrote that this newfound cause was, and I quote, a cause for celebration. We found our cause. So the view that the pro-life position arose out of a spiritual conviction is just not factual. It was politics. Now, the view expressed by evangelicals when we were kids is the view that is expressed by the Jewish scholars today. According to the National Council of Jewish Women, life does not begin at conception under Jewish law. And they they quote the sources in the Talmud that note that the fetus is mere water. The Talmud is a uh, commentary on Jewish law. Uh, Rabbi's words about trying to understand it. And uh, so... Jewish, the Jewish faith out of which Christianity grew uh, has, has a very different view than what many Christians today. Donia Weber expresses this so very plainly. I have such respect for her. For a very long time, the Judeo-Christian thought held that life began with breath. In Genesis, it says that God breathed into dust to create humanity, that this was the moment that we had a living soul. I also began to change when I saw that the pro-life protection and care seemed to stop after birth. And I was frustrated with that. Nearly 75% of women who have abortions are low income. Nearly half are below the poverty line. Many women don't prefer abortion. They just see no other way that they can live out of their economic situation. Missouri's legislature passed the trigger law banning virtually all abortions, but the same legislature overturned a state referendum on Medicaid expansion. Denise and I begin to think that if, if people who really do value life and are pro-life in that terminology, then where is the universal health care? And where's protected, federally protected family leave? Where's early childhood education and subsidized daycare? To us, the call of being pro-life, and we had a cognitive dissonance with this, we couldn't call ourselves pro-life that rang shallow without advocacy for a safety net. Without a support system for those who are pregnant and the children that are born. Denise, I never did. I I used to attend school board meetings, community meetings rather, about school, opposing uh, contraception and uh, sex education. And then when we got in college, I got to thinking, why? Why would pro-life people oppose contraception and sex education? It's the best way to prevent pregnancy. The same people, and I was in that group that were pro-life and anti-abortion were anti-birth control, anti-sex ed. The only sex ed they liked was abstinence, and that never works. The third reason. I had to ask myself the question, do I want government to make this choice? When mother was in the hospital at Baptist in Little Rock, Baptist Hospital. The doctor talked to Denise and me and my two sisters, and the doctor said, basically, if you leave your mom in the hospital, we will fight to keep her alive. If you take your mother to the hospice care there in Little Rock, they will do everything they can to keep her comfortable. And I said, well, doc, what do you recommend? What's mother's prognosis here? She's not going to make it. And so, I made that decision to keep my mom in the hospital where they were going to try to keep her alive or to let her go. It's a decision I made for my grandpa, my grandpa Murdoch, years and years ago, because uh, his wife just couldn't make it, grandpa. And I got to thinking, I don't want the government to come in and tell me what choice to make in that situation. And I wondered if there was a parallel with people who are pregnant. Do I want the government to tell them? And my view is no. I want that to be between the doctor and the patient. I don't think a politician has any right to say that. My world used to be very black and white. No gray. The world is a lot different than that. So I am anti-abortion, but I'm very pro-choice. Nisi and I saw a news report about Heather Martell. She and her husband desperately wanted the baby that she was carrying, whom they named Oliver. They were devout Roman Catholics, did not believe in abortion. They were so pro-life. But then the doctor discovered severe abnormalities in Oliver, said that Oliver would not survive but just a few days after birth, and those few days would be very painful for him. And So, this Catholic couple who were anti-abortion decided to have an abortion. She was 20 weeks pregnant in Wisconsin where they lived did not allow abortions after 20 weeks so she went to Minnesota when she walked into the clinic to the sidewalk toward the clinic she was met by protesters who were telling her there's help for you and heather said this to have someone who is so ignorant of our situation tell me that there was help if there had been help anywhere, I would have found it and gotten it. And that hit me, someone who is so ignorant of our situation. I don't want anybody who is ignorant of a person's situation to tell that person what they can or cannot do in regard to their pregnancy. So, what does love say and what does love do? I'm learning that what love does is seek to understand. And it's my position today that a doctor and a patient are the best people to understand, not a politician. Jen Hatmaker says abortion is a choice women make for endless personal reasons including the health of the mother, the health of the baby, rape, incest, viability, financial instability, a dangerous home environment lack of help, and of course, reasons that are theirs alone, as are our bodies. This is intensely personal and private, and women deserve agency and choice, not only with their bodies, but over the decision to parent for the rest of their lives. Anti-abortion advocates have very every right to their convictions, but those convictions should only apply to their bodies, and their families, and their future. On this, Paul Tillich, the theologian that I studied at Southwestern Seminary, I think he gets it right. Love is the ultimate law. Joseph Fletcher writes all laws and rules and principles and ideals and norms are only contingent, only valid if they happen to serve love. What does love say? What does love do? I think love understands. I think love loves children. That's why I'm anti-abortion. I love children. I don't believe personhood begins at conception. There's not a scriptural basis for that at all. Or a spiritual one, I don't believe. So, I'm very pro-choice, trying to understand where people are. What do you think, Nase? Are you okay with this? It's hard.
1: it's not an easy answer at all but I think that's where individual stories come into play and I can't make decisions for somebody else I don't know what I would do in their shoes I've not been in their shoes but I can't imagine um, being a child and being forced to carry a baby when I'm a baby if I was a child and so um, that would be an emotional scar on that child for the rest of their life and um, it's not always an easy answer as we have often made it sound like it was so easy and uncomplicated but in our 42 years of life and married life and doing ministry it's never really ever easy, all the stories we've, ho- we've heard from people like you that have those stories.
0: It's a lot easier if y'all just don't talk to me. <laughs> and I can just tell you what's right and wrong. You start complicating my life when you tell me your stories. And my theology had no answers for the stories of real people.